2007, October 30th. Today is Lecture 28, Inside the Earth. Let's go on here and talk about today's lecture. Now, yesterday we talked about the age of the Earth. That was kind of a nice segue into, into the topics that we're going to be getting into today. This week is the Earth and the Moon. The basic idea we're going to start with today is we want to view the Earth as a planet. We're going to start our study of the solar system here at home by starting with the Earth, looking at the Earth in detail. And then as we go out to the terrestrial planets, we're going to then make detailed comparisons of what it is we find in the terrestrial planets to what it is we find here on Earth. The Earth is one of the few places with meteorites where we can get a reasonably good age for the, for the body. The next body that we actually have a reasonable age for turns out to be the moon, as we'll find out on Thursday. Today I want to sort of peel the Earth apart and look at it in its interior, the Earth as a planetary system. What are the similarities, what are the properties here that I'll use as touchstones for my comparison with the other ter terrestrial planets? So the key ideas today is I want to talk about the interior structure of the Earth. We're going to meet a process called differentiation, which is very important for large bodies in the solar system. We're going to see that the Earth has differentiated, it's separated out into two basic components, an inner solid iron core surrounded by a molten iron mantle, and then riding on top of that are the two outer components, a thick rocky mantle made mostly of silicate rocks and a thin rocky crust, which is the solid bit we stand on. We'll say a little bit at the in the middle here about the Earth's magnetic field. We'll introduce the idea of the geodynamo that actually is generating the Earth's magnetic field from currents occurring in the molten outer core of the Earth. Again, it's another touchstone with terrestrial planets. Do we find magnetic fields elsewhere in the solar system? And if so, how are they generated by analogy to what we see here on the Earth that we can study in detail? And finally, I want to talk in detail about the crust of the Earth, the fact that the crust is broken up into 16 tectonic plates. We'll discuss the ideas of plate tectonics and, and, and continental drift that gives rise to a lot of the geologic activity on our planet. And we'll say a bit about plate boundaries and hot spots, which is where a lot of that activity actually occurs in the present day. And so we can look at the various processes that occur in the present days at plate boundaries or near hot spots on the Earth. And that, again, will give us points of comparison for not only understanding the Earth, but for applying that knowledge to the other planets. So today we're going to be the Earth as a planet. So we look at the Earth from space. What we see is a spherical object with a mostly silicate crust and primarily covered with water. In fact, if we sort of, looking at the Earth as a beautiful blue marble like this is, is an okay picture, but for our purposes, we're gonna have to sort of unwrap that picture. So if we turn the Earth into a computer and we unwrap it and we get the clouds out of the way, what I find for the surface of the Earth is about 71% of the Earth's surface area is covered by water. In fact, it's covered by the oceans of the Earth, and only about 29% is covered by land mass. Some large fraction of that land mass is covered completely in ice in the present epoch. In earlier days, there was less ice, and sometimes there was more ice as we went through various ice ages on the Earth. So this is what the Earth would look like from the outside, from its surface. But we'd like to get below the surface appearances of the Earth, and we'd like to ask what the internal, internal structure of the Earth is like. To get some idea for that, we might want to look, to start with, about what the, what the surface composition is like. And the way you look at that is, let's look at some of the rocks that I see around me. If you went outside and just picked up a rock, there's a good chance it's going to be one of four basic types of rocks that are the primary rocks that make up the crust of the Earth. 
It might be a silicate rock like this granite here on the left or these quartz river rocks over here on the right. If you picked up a black rock that was kind of heavy and dense, there's a good chance that's an iron-rich basalt. It's actually a bit of cooled lava that's recently been formed and blown up into the, into the surrounding uh, surface. So this is, in fact, a fairly nice lava rock here from the southwest. Or if you dug into the ground, and this is not uncommon, for example, here in Ohio, if you go out into, for example, some of the areas where the glaciers had gone a, a cut through, you'll often find a sort of a white, chalky-like rock, which is very strongly carbon-bearing. In fact, it's carbonaceous or carbon-bearing rocks, like this limestone, which is composed of calcium carbonate. In fact, this is the compressed, primarily the compressed bodies of ancient um, marine animals. And there are many layers of various types of limestones around. If any of you have out, been out to some of the, the nice ravines and, and metro parks around Ohio, if you haven't had a chance to do that, a couple of them are very nice because a couple of the layers are layers of dolomite, which is a high magnesium limestone. And that's actually showing you that this section right here in the middle of Ohio a very, very long time ago was in fact seabed. That's part of a clue as to what's going on. The Earth is a very dynamic place. We're seeing marine fossils and marine minerals in the middle of a landmass. So things have changed a lot over geologic time. Change is very slow, but we have, as we learned yesterday, four and a half billion years in round numbers to work with. And over those long periods of time, these very slow processes can play out. If I dug into the Earth, and we have, in fact, dug into the Earth for mining purposes and drilling purposes, and one of the things you learn right away is the deeper you get in the Earth, the hotter it gets. It actually gets warmer and warmer the deeper you get into the Earth. In fact, down in some of the deepest gold mines and coal mines in the world, it's really hot down there. And the reason for all this heat is because as you go through the various layers going deeper and deeper in the Earth, all the weight of the upper layers being held onto the Earth by gravity are pressing down upon you. As you compress materials, they heat up. So it's a basic law of physics. That you, anything you compress, you're going to heat it up. Compression always leads to heating and increased density. So what you expect as you go deeper and deeper is the material gets denser. It gets more and more squeezed together. So there's more mass squeezed into a particular volume. And that compression causes it to heat up a great deal. The deeper you go, the greater the compression and the greater the heating. Now, it turns out that that part of that heating process is going to be abetted by the fact that you also have a second process going on in the construction of large planets called differentiation. Way back in the distant past, as the Earth was being assembled by many, many pieces that were coming together and hitting the Earth and building up the mass of the Earth, the heat of that formation actually caused the material to get so hot it melted and became molten. When you have a molten material made of a mix of light material and, and heavy material in the presence of a gravitational field, the heavy stuff will settle out, fall under gravity, and the light stuff will float onto the top. In the Earth, what we expect for the heavy materials are going to be things like iron and nickel, the two most abundant heavy elements out of which the solar system formed. These things are going to be so dense, they're going to sink down to the middle of the Earth. The lighter materials are going to be the minerals that are made mostly of silicon and silicates. That's going to be light stuff, and that's actually going to float up to the top of the surface of the Earth. The analogy you can think about is, and wasting food's a bad thing, but you can sort of think, imagine you went out and you bought a, a carton of chocolate chip ice cream, mint chocolate chip ice cream. It's got lots of big chocolate chunks in between the sort of matrix of mint ice cream. You know, I know it's just after lunch, but I'm thinking about food. And you go out and eat it, and you put it back in the freezer, and your roommate comes and guts themselves a scoop, but your roommate's a lazy wad, and they leave it out on the table. What's going to happen? 
Well, not very long, it's going to melt. What's going to happen if it melts a lot? Well, what's going to happen is all the chocolate chunks are going to sink to the bottom of the box. All the milk solids and other frothy stuff is going to go to the top. And so you're going to take this beautifully mixed up together mint chocolate chip ice cream and you're going to get a complete separation. Heavy stuff on the bottom, light frothy stuff up on top. That process is exactly what happens when you make a planet the size of the Earth molten. So what you get is you start with a mixture of iron and silicates all being delivered into the Earth and all making this big molten ball. But the heavy stuff is like the chocolate chips and the ice cream. It sinks straight to the center. And of course, it's not sinking through liquid um, milk, you know, milk cream. It's actually sinking through a sort of a liquid silicate junk that's got about the, the uh, consistency of plasticine or silly putty. So you get these long kind of funny squiggly figures going down with a big mass up there, but it kind of leaves long trails behind it. Eventually the lighter materials, the silicate materials rise to the top and the iron stuff sinks to the bottom. By the time things begin to solidify, you get the picture over on the right. So you expect as you go down into the earth, you'll have a dense solid iron core surrounded by a liquid outer iron core that's still hot enough to be molten. And then you get a mantle of kind of mushy, silly putty kind of consistency, mostly silicate rocks. And then you get a thin crust here shown in exaggerated scale, which actually contains a lot of the solidified, fully solid silicate rocks that we walk around on all the time. Now differentiation is not perfect. Okay, Not all of the iron goes to the center. Similarly, not all of the silicates rise to the top. They kind of mix together. So. So the analogy with the, uh, the mint chocolate chip ice cream only goes so far. Imagine instead of leaving the mint chocolate chip ice cream out on the counter, you see it there and you stir it all up so it gets all mixed up again and you stick it in the freezer. So it's starting to do its settling trick while simultaneously freezing. You're going to get a partial separation. Some of the chocolate chips will still be floating on the top, but most of them will have sunk towards the bottom and then you'll get the sort of lighter stuff in between. So you won't get a total separation as if you left it out on the counter, but if you mix it up again and get it freezing as the settling process occurs, you'll lock in some of that, some of those, some of those constituents in both layers. Let's look at this now in a proper scale. So if I was to slice the earth like a sort of slicing a bit out of a, of a, of a cake and looking at the different layers of the earth from the inside to the outside, what I find is as follows. 2% of the mass of the Earth is at the very center of the Earth. It's a nearly pure silicon, I'm sorry, nearly pure iron nickel core. It has a depth somewhere below our feet. These numbers here are how far below my feet it is. Between 5,100 and 6,370 kilometers below our feet is a solid iron core. Now it's really hot down here. The core of the Earth is about 7,000 degrees Celsius Kelvin. 7,000 Kelvin is way above the freezing point for iron way above the melting point, excuse me, for iron. So iron should be a liquid down there, but it's not. And the reason is because the weight of all the stuff on top of the earth is placing this superheated iron in a very, very high pressure environment. It's got the weight of the other 98% of the earth crushing down upon it. That's 98% that's of the earth is about six times 10 to the 27 kilograms. That high pressure causes a phenomenon called pressure freezing. You can actually cause materials that in, in normal room conditions will melt into a liquid to actually freeze into a solid at high temperature. And so we get this effect of, of pressure freezing of the solid iron core. 
But as you move away from the center of the earth, the pressure begins to let off because there's less and less stuff above you crushing down upon you. And you make a very abrupt, relatively abrupt transition between a solid iron core to a molten iron nickel core, which contains 30% of the mass of the earth. So combined, 32% of the mass of the earth is iron or nickel, but it's all pretty much sunk to the bottom. But this intermediate zone, which contains 30% of the Earth's mass, between 2,900 and 5,100 kilometers below our feet, is actually liquid molten iron nickel. So it's actually a liquid flowing iron nickel liquid. It's called, so we've used the word molten. Outside this molten core, we're getting above the densest stuff, most of which sank to the bottom, and we get the silicates, which floated up on top of that heavy iron nickel crud that sank to the bottom. In the region between 100 kilometers below our feet and 2,900 kilometers, down to the transition between the molten iron core, we have a mass of kind of mushy silicates. It's, it's again, it's, it's not solid. It hasn't formed itself into a solid crystal, but it's really formed itself into kind of a mushy, plasticine, kind of silly putty Play-Doh kind of consistency, which means if you squeeze on it, it can actually flow, but it flows really slowly. This contains 67%, two-thirds of the mass of our planet is in this zone. And this is the region we call the mantle. So you can think of a core surrounded by a mantle. This core mantle structure is characteristic of any differentiated body. You have a hot, dense, metallic core surrounded by a cooler, sometimes larger, mantle of some lighter material. Down here in the terrestrial planet zone, this lighter mantle is made mostly of silicates. When we got out into the outer solar system, we're going to start seeing things like ice mantles, where there's large amounts of ices in the outer solar system forming this mantle around the solid core. Floating on the very top of that mantle, down to a depth of around 100 kilometers on average, is a solid crystalline silicate rock structure we call the crust. There's a very thin transition layer that lives between them. You can see it in this white line. And this is all drawn in scale here. All of these are in their proper thicknesses for this little sector I've cut out of the Earth. So as I go down through the Earth, the material gets progressively hotter and at a progressively higher pressure. I see changes in composition from essentially silicates with a little teeny tiny bit of iron at the top, a big mushy silicate mantle, and then down around 2,900 kilometers below our feet, the composition around you would change abruptly from silicates to iron nickel, almost pure iron nickel, with you know, some magnesium and sulfur and other stuff mixed in. It would stay liquid down to about 5,100 kilometers, and then at 7,000 degrees Kelvin, there is a solid iron nugget, spherical iron nugget, iron nickel nugget, right in the middle of the Earth. This fact that we have a large liquid iron, liquid metallic piece down here in the outer core is very important for the Earth. It's actually responsible for generating the Earth's considerable magnetic field. Deep inside the Earth, the core is really hot. It's about 7,000 degrees, but the temperature is cooler in that outer molten iron core. If you have a, like a, think about a pot of water. You stick it on the stove and you turn on the flame, so the bottom of the pot's getting really, really hot, but the top of the water is still the cool water, cold water that came out of your faucet. What's going to happen over time is you'll start heating up that layer of water at the bottom of the pot. When water gets hot, it gets low density. When a low density material is suspended in a higher density liquid, what it does is it becomes buoyant and it floats up to the surface. So suddenly you've got a little layer of hot water at the bottom of the pot is suddenly buoyant 
and it flows up, becomes buoyant and floats to the top of the pot, carrying all its heat with it. As it flows to the top of the pot, it hits the top of the pot, hits the air, and begins to cool off. As the hot stuff rises, it displaces the colder material back down towards the bottom of the pot. The colder material at the bottom of the pot comes in contact with the hot flame below the pot, it heats up, it becomes buoyant, and not too long, you've suddenly got a rolling simmer going in the pot, and as you crank the heat up further and further, as there's a bigger difference in temperature between the bottom of the pot and below, you pretty soon get a rolling boil going in the pot. That rolling boil is called convection. Well, the same thing happens down in the earth. You get a hot, solid core, it's like the bottom of the pot, and you get a liquid iron layer above that. Hot on the bottom, cool on the top, the hot iron liquid is slightly less dense than its surroundings, it becomes buoyant, it rises, until it reaches the top of the liquid iron core and it kind of bumps up against the bottom of the mantle. That displaces cooler liquid metallic iron and nickel down towards the core where it gets hotter and it sets up circulation currents inside the liquid metallic core, just like water circulating in a boiling pot. Now if you take an electrically conducting metal and you set it to rolling around, you've built a dynamo just like a big disk of metal in a magnetic field rolling inside of a dam, being turned around by the water rushing through the dam. So this flowing electric con conducting material that's boiling away inside the molten core is producing an electric dynamo. It's generating a magnetic field. This generation of the magnetic field threads its way out through the Earth and actually out into the space surrounding the Earth. So the fact that the Earth has a strong magnetic field is, is telling us that deep inside the interior, there is a liquid, electrically conducting, metallic material that is in circulation. If I go outside the Earth, what I'll see is this. The Earth is now deep down inside this. The magnetic field becomes this huge structure outside the Earth. This is what makes magnetic compasses work, and it also gives us, for example, a little bit of protection from the particle breeze that's flowing off the solar wind, from cosmic rays coming in from large distances, any charged particle encountering a, magnetic, encountering a magnetic field will be deflected or will spiral down along the poles. Some of those charged particles can slap the poles, they smack into the atmosphere of the Earth, light up the upper atmosphere, and we get the aurora borealis. So the magnetic field of the Earth is generated by processes occurring deep in the interior of the Earth. Now, I'm not going to talk a lot more today about the Earth's magnetic field. I'm going to wait until we've seen some more of the solar system to put magnetic fields in context. But here again is one of those little signposts. You sort of think a little post-it note. We're going to stick on the Earth and say, the Earth has a magnetic field. What does it mean if I go somewhere else in the solar system and either see a magnetic field or I don't? What does that tell me? Well, it immediately tells me something important about the deep interior of that planet. If there's no magnetic field and it's a solid terrestrial planet, there are no circulating metals inside of it, and therefore its interior may be completely solidified. Whereas a planet with a strong magnetic field is giving away the presence of a liquid interior that's flowing. Even though I can't drill down there and see it, the magnetic field is an outward manifestation of this inner structure deep in the interior of the planet. But it, we really would like to, to verify what we're saying. I would like to see inside the Earth. It'd be really nice to say that that picture I drew, you know, you can sort of slice the Earth open, is kind of inconvenient. We can't drill down more than a couple of kilometers. It turns out below a couple kilometers, all of our drilling technology falls apart. 
think the deepest drill holes have been like 10 or maybe 15 kilometers so far in very, very thin parts of the oceanic crust. But that doesn't even get us out of the crust. We haven't even gotten into the mantle and the other parts. So, so how is that picture that I showed you before of a solid iron core surrounded by a liquid iron core surrounded by the uh, mushy mantle? How do we know that? Well, the way we know that is pretty much the same way that a doctor looks inside you without cutting you open by using x-rays or using uh, tomography, using, using like a CAT scanner. But instead of using x-rays or high-energy particles like in a medical scanner, we use sound waves. In this case, not sound waves in air, but sound waves in materials. We, use, we need to have some way to generate. We need to make a shock in the Earth. And what better way than either an earthquake? An earthquake is a tremendous release of energy at one point on the surface. It punches the Earth really hard and releases energy that's carried off in seismic waves. And we watch how these seismic waves ripple and echo through the interior of the Earth. And by putting seismographs all over the planet, we can reconstruct the picture of the interior of the Earth. There are two kinds of seismic waves that are important to us. Pressure or compression waves called P waves. These are shown by the little slinky picture here on top. They're waves where I take rock, compress it and release, compress, decompress, compress, decompress, compress, decompress. They're like sound waves in air, except they're sound waves in solid rock. They can not only pass through solids, they can pass through liquids as well. They just compress the liquid, rarefy, compress, rarefy. So a P wave will go all the way through the earth, through the solid portions, through the mushy parts, through the molten parts. The other kind of wave I can make is a shear wave. It's kind of like a water wave, where instead of pushing rock together, what I'm doing is I'm shearing rock. I take one bit of rock and I shove it down really fast. Of course, it's sticky and it tries to carry its neighbors down. And so you get something like, like the stadium doing the wave, where people go up and down. When you're doing the wave in a stadium, you're doing a shear wave. You're doing an up and down wave. So I'm making rock do this. Rock and solid is really good at shearing, just rubbing one part against the other and it just rolls around. Well, if you do that in liquid, it goes mush, mush, mush. It stops, it damps out. So this is the, this is the key. The P waves will go through everything. But the shear waves will only go through the solid parts. As soon as they hit the mushy liquid parts, they just damp out and they stop. So we'll be able to differentiate whether I've got a wave passing through solid or a wave passing through liquid as to whether the S waves get through or not, whereas the P waves will get through everything. So using those together, we can actually literally tomograph the Earth. We can carve it up, or geologists can do this. So here's how we do it. An earthquake is a single, imp single impulse of energy. We have seismic stations all over the Earth. Earthquakes tend to be bad if they happen near populated areas. They kill people, so we'd like to keep track of them and know where they are. Turns out also during the Cold War, when people stopped, decided that, you know, letting off nuclear bombs in the air and letting all that radioactive fallout and nasty crap go around was kind of bad because it was falling on your own people, even you were developing weapons to go on the other guys. So what you did was we had an international agreement to shove the bombs underground, to do underground tests. Well, that was just a boon for, con for confirming that a nuclear bomb went off, because it's a huge amount of energy in a small space, and it makes seismic waves all over the planet. So the US and Russia, not trusting each other not to cheat and, and wanting to measure how strong was your bomb test, 
instead of hiring a bunch of spies to go to the top secret places, they simply put seismographs all over their territory and they watch the waves that go through and, oh, hey, it looks like the South Africans just tested the bomb. Um, you could pinpoint where the explosion was, how much energy there was, and so forth. But a side benefit was <coughs> it was ringing the earth. So between earthquakes and nuclear bomb testing up to about a decade ago, you're ringing the earth every day or so. And you watch these echoes, shove it into a supercomputer, turn the echo pattern upside down, and hey, bingo, you've got yourself a tomograph. And you can actually reconstruct the inside of the Earth. To give you some idea of just how much these seismic waves can ring the Earth, this is a series of seismograph recordings of that Indonesian earthquake a couple of years ago that caused that terrible tsunami that killed about a quarter million people. Here's the starting wave coming out from the epicenter in the Indonesia a station at Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean, up in Mongolia, Papua New Guinea, uh, Zambia, South Africa, the South Pacific, Alaska, the South Atlantic Ocean, Antarctic Station, Pinion Flats, California, Easter Island, Chile, another station in Chile, and a station down in Ecuador. And what you're seeing is time is laid out on the axis to the right, and this is that wave rattling back and forth through the Earth many times. So this is what we can see. We can actually see, in this case, this is looking at the surface waves. You can see that the Earth is just rung like a bell every single time that an earthquake goes off. And the super sensitive techniques allow us to cut the Earth into pieces. This ultimately is how we learned what that layer cake structure looks like in the Earth. How we know that the outer core is completely liquid because the S and P waves kind of barely make it through, but the... Um, the S waves, the shearing waves, are totally stopped in the really liquid outer core. And so I end up with this shadow zone behind the core, behind the earthquake, where only the P waves make it through, only the pressure waves that can pass through the liquid make it through. And that allows me by, take a shot here, take a shot here, take a shot here, build it up over the years, and pretty soon you've got a complete picture of the inside of the earth, just the same way a doctor builds up a complete picture of your insides, by taking different scans from different directions with the CAT scanner. It's just a seismic wave CAT scanner instead of a positron CAT scanner. So what this, the structure, we do know this pretty well. And so we're able to use this to help us abstract what we see around other planets. Well, let's start up, let's step away from the interior for a second and talk about what's going on kind of up on the surface, up where we are, standing on the crust. The crust is a fairly thin, relatively brittle layer of solid silicates and with a little bit of iron mixed in here and there. But if we look at the crust of the Earth, it's not all of one piece. The Earth, in fact, looks like a kind of a big fractured puzzle containing 16 pieces of various size. These 16 kind of curved pieces on the cracked surface of the Earth we call tectonic plates. There are two types of tectonic plate. The thinnest of these are the ones that are on the ocean bottoms, on the so-called oceanic plates, and they can be as little as 10 kilometers thick at their thinnest portions. These are the places where people try to drill down to the transition region below the crust. That's why they're working on ships with special drills to drill through the, the thinnest portions, trying to get into the crust mantle transition layer to try to see how well our ideas work down there. The continental plates get up to around 50 kilometers maximum thickness. So these are the outer plates, and they ride upon a kind of a 50-kilometer size transition zone that together gives us the 100-kilometer thick crust of the Earth. Now, these plates are floating, if you will, on top of the mantle. The mantle's semi-liquid. It's 
It's really, like I said, it's kind of mushy. It's got kind of a play-doh, silly putty kind of consistency. And it's actually riding on the top of that. Now, the transition zone between the solid crustal plates and the kind of mushy, silly putty is actually greased a little bit, although not with grease. It's actually greased with um, kind of a slippery rock, slightly hydrated with water, because water comes down from the upper portions, that forms basically basaltic lavas. It's a, a section that's actually very liquid that rides on the inter interface between the solid outer crust and the inner kind of mushy, mushy mantle. This region where the basaltic lavas form, these are iron-rich lavas, hence the name basalt, are what lubricates the bottom of the plates. Because the bottom of the plates are lubricated, they kind of slip around laterally across the surface of the earth. Now, this motion is really, really slow. The best way to think about the typical speed of a tectonic plate moving from side to side moves about as fast as your fingernails grow. Well, it doesn't sound like a whole lot, but remember, we've got billions of years to work with. And also, there's an awful lot of energy involved because there may be moving at you know, millimeters per century, centimeters per century, but they've got the mass of a whole continental plate. That's an awful lot of stuff in motion, however slow. So there's a lot of energy stored up in all this motion. And it's this lateral sliding around that gives the Earth its characteristic geography. To use a technical phrase, the Earth is characterized by what's called lateral tectonism, the fact that we're seeing forces due to plates sliding side by side laterally with respect to each other. So I took that picture of the Earth, and let's get the oceans out of the way. Now that water's kind of, it's a bother. Let's just get it out of the way so we can reveal the ocean crust on the floor. And this is the unwrapped solid surface of the Earth. I see the high continents in dark. The light brown coating here is the ocean floor. This is exactly that same picture I showed before with water. Now these blue lines here show the boundaries between the 16 crustal plates. There's a gigantic plate here called the Pacific Plate, the North America Plate. This is a section known as the Nazca Plate, the South African Plate, and so forth. And there's this little tiny one here, which is ramming its way up into India here with Australia. There's lots of plates. The blue are the plate boundaries. Now you look at this and you say, yeah, okay, so what? So let's take this picture and let's overlay where the world's active volcanoes over the last 50 years are. So where on the Earth has a volcano going off either right now or any time in the last, yeah, maybe 50 to 100 years? Well, the answer turns out to be, oh, look at that. The volcanoes, for the most part, are in close proximity to the plate boundaries, especially here in the Pacific. There's Mount St. Helens is up in here somewhere. There's a whole bunch of volcanoes here along the Andes, Mexico, Central America, all along the Aleutian, Japan, Indonesia, forming this kind of place. The geologists knew this for years. It's called the Ring of Fire, the fact that all the, the Pacific Rim seem to be circled with volcanoes. This idea that the plates of the Earth, the Earth is broken into 16 plates, is relatively recent. It was only agreed upon by geologists in the 1960s. But people have been noticing things like, gee, you know, not all the volcanoes are at the plate boundaries. This is the active volcano of Mauna Loa on the island of Hawaii. It's right smack in the middle of a plate. Here in Africa, there are active volcanoes in the middle of the big African plate. Those are what are called hotspot volcanoes. There are occasional little hot spots where there's a crack in the earth and there's magma and junk welling up from the transition layer between the mantle and the crust. But for the most part, if you want to find a volcano, go to a crustal boundary. Go to a boundary between two tectonic plates. 
But there's an even more dramatic effect if instead of plotting volcanoes, what I plot on this are the seismic locations of the strongest magnitude three or above earthquakes over the last 50 years. Bam! They line up over all of the crustal boundaries, nearly every single boundary, even these little teeny tiny poopy little plates out here in the Pacific. They're surrounded by earthquakes. Some of these places like Japan, Indonesia, where there was that terrible earthquake a few years ago, the Japanese earthquake a couple months ago. California, you want to find an earthquake? Go to the plate boundary that runs right through the middle of southern and northern California and cuts the, plant, cuts the state practically in half all along the Indian coast. I grew up in California. I often go observing in Arizona. Where have I felt most of my earthquakes? California and Chile, in fact. I, get, I felt probably an earthquake every single time I've gone observing in Chile. Sometimes strong, one of them strong enough to knock me out of my bed. So if you want to find an earthquake, gee, the earthquake centers, there's a few in the middle. There's even one up here in Ohio. But for the most part, if you want an earthquake, you've got to go to a tectonic boundary. What's going on here is these are the most active places in, on the Earth because this is where the plates are crashing into each other, pulling apart, and rubbing against each other. These are all, this is where all the action is on the Earth. And what you're seeing is the plates grinding together as they slide around the Earth. Why are they moving? Why aren't they just sitting still? Well, the answer has to do with that silly putty-like material in the mantle. The, the top of the outer iron core is hot, right? There's heat coming up from the convection from the inner co solid core, and that circulation pattern is giving me the magnetic fields. But it's depositing heat at the base of the mantle. It's cool up here, so the silly putty actually flows. But it flows really slow. Flows up and kind of over. As it flows across, the plate, the boundary between the mantle and crust is kind of sticky. So as it flows across, it kind of pulls on the plates and kind of slides them along. So how that patterning of upwelling and downwelling goes inside the mantle and how the cross currents go, the plates actually are driven along, they're floating and driven along by the convection currents. Like I said, the speed's only a few centimeters a year at most. It's kind of, you know, your, your fingernails, if you, if you didn't trim your fingernails, it'd be about a centimeter long after about 400 days. That's about how fast the plates move apart. But with modern GPS receivers and things like that, we can actually measure the plate motions. There's three ways in which the plates can move. They're all sliding laterally. They can collide together, shoving one part into another, or they can be pulled apart, or they can slide past each other. Okay, so they can slide past each other, crash together, or pull apart. We can map this out across the Earth. Here's a map of the plate motions done by GPS stations all over the Earth. And you can see the arrows showing the uh, continents moving apart, moving together. We can see an awful lot of motion here. The arrows have been exaggerated so you can see it. But it's really measured at centimeters per year. So it's a tiny amount. You know, the width of your finger every year, the whole Earth kind of slides around in various ways. Well, I'm impatient. Centimeters per year is boring. So let's do this for 750 million years. So if I go 750 million years into the past, to the present, that's what I see today. But that wasn't what the Earth looked like 750 million years ago. The Earth is an awfully dynamic place. In fact, one of the clues to plate tectonics was this puzzle piece appearance of the eastern coast of South America and the western coast of, Aust of Africa. They really do fit together. In fact, for most of the Earth's history, they were together. 
This is what's known as continental drift. This is powered by this underlying uh, convection in the mantle. This is what's giving rise to what we call lateral tectonism, the sliding laterally side to side of the various pieces of a fragmented 16-part solid crust of the Earth. Here's some of these boundaries where some of the action is. Where the um, Pacific Plate and the North America Plate come together, they're actually sliding side by side past each other. The North America Plate sliding towards the south, the Pacific Plate sliding towards the north. That's bringing the western portion of Baja California up into California. That's bringing most of the southwestern United States down into Mexico. As they slide together, of course, they're sticky. And they stick every now and then. And they stick. And the strain builds up. And then all of a sudden, things just go, bam! And the whole thing jumps five meters. And San Francisco gets flattened. That's what happened in 1906. This meeting point here, not too far from where I live. There's Highway 14. I live off over that, or I grew up over that direction, near Lancaster, California. That's the San Andreas Fault. And one of these years, that road's going to go like this. And that's when the big one comes. And what you're getting here is what's called a slip strike fault. And you actually generate earthquakes at the surface. Those are really powerful earthquakes, and they're pretty nasty. They've flattened a lot of territory here along the California coast over the history of the, history of the United States. Places where the two plates come crashing together, some really interesting things happen. For example, where the Nazca Plate off the coast of South America rams into the South American Plate, the Nazca Plate's one of these thin oceanic plates and is ramming into one of these thick continental plates. The Nazca Plate loses and gets shoved down below the South America Plate as they push together. And so you're actually taking the old crust in the Nazca plate, you're shoving it down into the hot mantle, and you're melting it again. So you're taking crust, and you're melting it and destroying it. You're resetting all the radioactive clocks, and you're making it part of the mantle. Meanwhile, the, the South America plate is meeting resistance, and the whole thing buckles. Say hello to the Andes mountain range. The Andes used to be seabed. Now they're 18, 20,000 feet in the air. The reason? It's crust buckling from the, from the collision. And not surprisingly, there are a lot of earthquakes along this boundary. Where the Eurasian and the Pacific Plate meet here, this is off the coast of Japan, for example. The Pacific Plate dives below the Eurasian Plate at the Japanese Trench, and you get this sort of vertical stress. And every now and then, that vertical stress goes wham, like that. The seabed drops, the ocean level drops, and then it comes back up again, and can you say hello to tsunami? It also does really bad things to places like, say, Kobe, Japan a couple of years ago. Basically, it takes the land, says, okay, you're going to move three meters up and then come back down. The buildings don't like that. People don't like that. It's really bad news. But this is this process called subduction. You basically destroy old crust by circulating it back into the deep interior of the Earth. The other place where you can come apart is called a divergent boundary, where the plates pull apart. This is out in the Atlantic Ridge, where the Earth is literally pulling apart. What happens when the Earth pulls apart? Magma from the interior wells up and creates brand new crust right in place. If you looked at the ages of rocks here at the middle of the North Atlantic Ridge and outwards, you'd find the very youngest rocks on the ridge, and they get progressively older as you head towards the European and North American continents. In fact, here in Iceland is an, is a, is an island being literally torn in half by the motion of these plates, the North America plate moving towards the west, the Eurasian plate moving towards the east. And there's a huge number of volcanoes, like Krafla, 
where the land is literally being pulled in two. Hot spots are what form in the middle of plates. You get a welling of magma up from the middle. And you get what's called a shield volcano because it builds in place. Here's the Hawaiian Islands. It's a shield volcano building in place. But it normally would build a gigantic volcano were it not for the fact that the whole Pacific plate is sliding towards the north. And so as a consequence, over this hot spot, you build an island chain of volcanoes, the Hawaiian island chain. The youngest volcanoes here on Hawaii, and then you get progressively older as you head out towards Kauai. If you look under the ocean, you can see the history of this dragging being written in the history of the seamounts. Here's the most current activity, and it trails off, showing you the direction of motion over many millions of years of the Pacific Plate. So the Earth is an exceedingly dynamic planet. Something like 80% of our crustal heating comes from radioactivity. It stays hot. That hot interior is making it liquid and slippery. And the whole crust is sliding around on the surface, giving us our geology. We're going to look throughout the solar system for evidences of different geologies as we go to different planets with different interiors and different histories.